Well, welcome to Living Hope Church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, today we're continuing in our series, Summer on the Psalm, Summer in the Psalms, and we'll be in Psalm chapter 8 if you would like to head in that direction. Uh, psalm chapter 8 is a beautiful psalm that gives us insight into who God is, into his majesty, and then insight into who we are as mankind in light of God's majesty. Your Bible, like mine, likely contains the heading for the director of music according to Giddeth, a psalm of David. Uh, and so Psalm chapter 8 is yet another psalm of David, then the king of Israel, and it was written and it was intended to be sang as a song of praise. The statement according to the Giddeth means the song was intended to be accompanied by the Giddeth, uh, which was a guitar-like harp that was associated with Gath in Philistia. So this is a song that tells about the majesty of our God and who we are in light of who he is. In September of 1977, NASA launched the Voyager 1 to study the outer solar system. And on February 14, 1990, after completing its primary mission and preparing to leave the solar system, NASA engineers turned its camera around and took a final picture of Earth from the distance of almost 4 billion miles. Uh, the picture is called a pale blue dot, and I think we have a picture of it, uh, because all the earth looks like, that's all that the earth looks like from that distance. There's a dot within that stream of sunlight down the middle. The astronomer and writer Carl Sagan, in a speech he gave at Cornell University in 1994, described the lesson he took from the picture. He said, if you look at it, you see a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever lived, lived out their lives. The aggregate of all of our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creature and destroyer of civilizations, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every hopeful child, every mother and father, every inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, Every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is, very, is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. He said our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged uh, by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. And so when Carl Sagan compared himself to the size of the universe, he suddenly felt small. And we're going to see in Psalm chapter 8 that he was right. We are small. But he was only half right. There's more to the story than that because God, who is majestic, who is all-powerful, who is creator and sustainer of the universe, says and shows to us that we are so much more than a speck and a lonely dot. In his majesty, he has created us with purpose. He has given us significance, and he loves us. And so we're going to look at all of that today, who God is, who we are in comparison to him, and then who he says we are. Because it's in God that our identity, purpose, and significance was always meant to be found. So we're in Psalm chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 1. David writes, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. 
You have made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this psalm and this reminder of how great and how majestic and how powerful you are. This reminder that you alone are worthy of praise in our worship. But God, we also see in this psalm that you give us value and significance because of who you are. And so God, my prayer today is that you would uh, just help us to see ourselves for who you say we are. Uh, Lord, and help us to see just how great and how majestic and how powerful you are. God, God, we love you and we just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to, to where it is that you would like to instruct us and teach us today. God, we love you and it's your name we pray. Amen. Turn this fan off real quick. There was a wedding last night, and it was warm in here, so uh, that fan was important, but right now it's uh, not helping things. Um, so Psalm 8 opens and closes with the same statement. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And anytime you see a psalm or a poem in the Bible open and end with the same statement, that's a really big clue that that statement is important, and it's probably the primary point of the passage And that's absolutely true in this case. The the whole passage is understood through the lens of God's majesty. Who man is can only be understood in light of who God is. And so our first point is that God is majestic, God is creator, and God is all-powerful. So it begins with, Lord, our Lord. And at first glance, it seems strange to say Lord twice, but it's more than just poetic language here. Here David uses two different words to describe God. The first Lord or the first word he uses is Yahweh, which is the the most reverent, the most holy name used for God. It's a name that was so holy that the Jews wouldn't even say it out loud. It's connected with Exodus 3.14 when God said to Moses, I am who I am. Yahweh refers to God's eternality. He has always been. It refers to his autonomy. He alone is creator and not created. God simply is, has always been, and is the source of all life that we know. The second Lord comes from the Hebrew word Adonai, and it means like master or king or boss or Lord. It means that God is ruler and he has the power and authority over all things. And so David is saying, you, God, are God, and you are master of this world, and you are my master, my king, my Lord. It's one of those things we struggle with in our culture. We struggle to let someone else be our Lord, be our king, be our provider, be our sustainer. When we trust Jesus with our lives, he doesn't desire to just become a part of our life, but he desires to become our Lord, our sustainer, our leader. Um, But as Americans, as Wyomingites, we struggle to submit to authority. We are independent, but that often makes it difficult for us to follow God as he desires to lead us. God desires to be our Lord, our guide. And that's a good thing because the Bible promises that God loves us, that he is all-powerful, that he is sovereign, And as we saw last week, that he is good and desires what is best for us. So David says, you are my God. You are sovereign over the earth, and you are my king, my Lord. And then David describes God as majestic. His beauty, his splendor is seen all around us, and this creation is just a glimpse of God's majesty. David says he is creator, and he is all-powerful. We see that in the second half of verse 1. He says, you have set your glory even above the heavens. 
God's glory and majesty not only fills the earth and the universe, His glory and majesty extend beyond the universe. God has set His glory not in the universe, but above and beyond all created things. In other words, as great as the universe is, God is greater. As big as the universe is, God is bigger. King Solomon understood this when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8.27. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. God's not even contained by the universe. He has set his glory above the heavens. God is greater than all. In verse 3, David says that the created world is just the work of God's fingers. Creation is amazing. It overwhelms our senses. But David says it was done with just the flick of God's fingers. It was done with ease. Have you ever known someone that is just like skilled and great at something? And things just come easy to them? My mom is a great baker. When I bake something, I have to get the cookbook out. I check and I measure everything. It is slow and it is a painstaking process for me to bake. I have to set aside time to bake and it often turns out okay. But when my mom bakes, she seemingly does it without effort, and it always turns out infinitely better than mine. And that's kind of how David, how David describes God. The task of creating the universe didn't even overwhelm him, but it was simply the work of his fingers. God is creator, he is sustainer, and he is so powerful that creation didn't even cause him to break a sweat. We see another glimpse of God's strength and power in verse 2. David says, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. David, in his imagery here, takes the thing that is most vulnerable in our world, the thing that is weakest. And he says, God is so powerful that he can take infants and he can conquer his greatest enemies. We see that throughout the Bible as God takes the the vulnerable, the unexpected, the weak, the shepherd boy, and he takes down giants. It is better to be weak but empowered by God than to be mighty and opposed to God. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. In God's use of the weak, in God's use of you and me, his greatness is further revealed. God's strength is more than sufficient to empower the weakest of men to take down the mightiest of enemies. God's majesty, his might, his power, his creation reveals to us how great our God is and how worthy of praise he is. God alone is worthy of praise. God alone is worthy to be worshipped. And the universe displays that truth to us. So David says, because of who God is, choir directors, us as his followers, fire up the giddeth and let's sing praises to our almighty God. God is majestic. He is creator. His majesty is seen in his creation. And he is all powerful. But the question then David asks is, who is mankind in light of who God is? We begin to see that in verses 3 and 4. David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. In light of the universe, what is mankind that God should even be mindful of us? That he should take note of us? And so that's our next point or our question. Who is man in light of God's greatness? 
David looked at the universe. He looked at the vastness of it. He pondered how great God is. And he asked, who am I in light of that? I mean, you consider the vastness of the universe. David could only see and only knew a glimpse of what we can see today with technology. They say with the naked eye, you can see about 5,000 stars when you look at the sky. If you have a four-inch telescope, you can see approximately 2 million stars. And then with a 200-inch mirror of a great observatory, you can see over a billion stars in the universe. The universe is so big that if we were to travel at the speed of light, it would take 40 billion years to reach the edge of the universe. Stopping to see the vastness of the universe should help us to see the greatness of God, but it should also help us to see how small we are in light of it all. When we fail to pause and see God's greatness, it's really easy to begin to be, become infatuated with ourselves and with mankind. It's easy to begin to see us, the created, as all-powerful and worthy of praise and worship. We just wrapped up the Olympics this past, past couple of weeks, and at the Olympics you see on display not only some really just strange sports, but you also see on display the greatness of mankind. There are people at the Olympics doing things that I couldn't even imagine doing. I mean, if I tried to do the vault or the uneven bars or the kayaking course, I would likely die, yet they make it look easy. And when you watch that greatness, with, with greatness without perspective, it's easy to begin worshiping the accomplishments of man. One of my favorite examples of this comes from history. King Louis XIV ascended to the throne of France at the age of four. Uh, he enjoyed the longest reign of power in modern European history. He became so infatuated with himself and so intoxicated by his power that he referred to himself as the great monarch and declared, I am the state. But guess what happened to King Louis in 1715? Just like every other ruler, monarch, and mortal, King Louis advocated his throne upon his death. His funeral was held just as he prescribed, and it was nothing short of amazing. The great cathedral was packed with mourners to pay their final tribute to their king as he laid in a solid gold coffin. But to up the dramatic, King Louis had prescribed for a solitary candle to burn above the gold and jewel-laden casket. And at the appointed time, uh, and it represented his, his glory and who he was. Well, at the appointed time, the funeral service began, and Bishop Massillian stood to address the crowd and conduct the funeral. And when he rose, he did something that shocked the crowd and the nation. He bent down from the pulpit, and he extinguished the lone candle that was burning and represented the greatness of Louis XIV. The people gasped, and the bishop from the darkness uttered four words. He said, only God is great. God, not man, is great. And because of that, he alone is to be praised. Now, hopefully none of us are ever as egregious in our boasting as King Louis XIV, but we are all drawn to praising ourselves or others as opposed to God. God alone is creator. God alone is majestic. God alone is sovereign. God alone is powerful. And it is God alone that we were created to praise. From the vastness of the universe to the weakness of the man, of man who is only enabled to overcome his enemies by God's strength, all of creation testifies, all of creation proclaims only God is great. It's so good for us to spend time just resting in the glory of God and the beauty of his creation because it grounds us and it keeps us humble. Yet we are tempted to worship ourselves and we are tempted to worship man as opposed to God. But worshiping mankind or even worshiping creation, Mother Nature, which is the cool thing to do in Oregon where I grew up, 
When we worship the created, when we do that, we are worshiping the created as opposed to the creator. When you worship mankind or even the created things of this world, you are making the same mistake you would be if you bowed down and worshiped your phone as opposed to recognizing that it was a human being that thought it up and designed it. So it is when we bow down and worship human or mankind uh, instead of God. We fail to recognize that God created us, that God imagined us, that God designed us and he made us. And we are as helpless without him as technology is without power. God alone is to be worshipped. That's the overarching point. God alone is to be worshipped. And so the next time you're out at the lake or camping in the mountains, take some time and remember God that created all you see. Praise him and thank him for his majesty. In light of God's majesty, in light of the vastness of his creation, in light of who he is, we see that we are small, that we are finite, and that he alone is worthy of worship. So man's not worthy of worship, but then who are we? Are we just a collection of DNA? Are we just a random chance? Are we just another animal on the food chain? I mean, there are many in the science community and in our world today that would tell us that's all we are. A random accident, a collection of cells and bones with no purpose, with no intentionality, with no reason to live other than to enjoy this life and get everything out of it we can. I read an article this week on the value of a human being based on the chemicals in the body. And they said based on the chemicals in the body, these writers estimate the human body is worth anywhere between $1 and $5 on the open market. So what's our value? What is our purpose? Where is it found? Let's look at verses 4 through 6. David says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. What David says is that we, that you and I, that mankind, that we have value because God, who is majestic and who is all-powerful and who is creator, gives us value. And so our next point is God gives us value and he has created us with purpose. Genesis 1.27 tells us that mankind is created in the image of God. David in Psalm 139 tells us that not only does God create us in his image, but he creates us each personally with purpose, and he sees us, and he thinks about us, and he loves us. Here's an excerpt from that passage. It says, For you created my inmost beings. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. So amazing that the, the God of the universe not only creates us, but he sees us and he thinks about us. That's what David's saying here in verses 4 through 6. God didn't just create us as another animal, but he created us in his image, and he has elevated us because of that above the animals. He has given us purpose, which is to manage and govern over his creation. The purpose is expanded in the New Testament and other passages to include the purpose of glorifying and praising him and making him known. But you and I, David says, are not just an accident. We are created by God with the purpose of giving him glory. He knows you. He loves you. He sees you. He thinks about you. He created you. You have immense value because you are created in the image of God and because he says you have value. So this week when life comes up, when things get overwhelming, stop and remember this fact. 
The God who created the universe that is all-powerful sees you, knows you, and he loves you right where you are, just as you are. He knows your past, your presence. He knows your flaws, your inabilities, your strengths, and your every thought, and yet he chooses to love you. He desires to be in a relationship with you. How do, we, how do we know that's true? We know that's true because that love, that value, that purpose is ultimately seen in the cross. And so our final point is that our value is seen in God's love for us. Ultimately, our value is seen in God's love and his care for us as humans. As we said, it is amazing that God would create us each individually and that he would care for us, but it goes beyond that. In our pride and our self-centered nature, we have all sinned. We have all worshipped something or someone other than God. We've all defied his instructions for our lives. We have all gone our own way. I don't think we have to look too far back to see that in our lives. The Bible calls that sin, and Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us the wage, the consequence of our sin is death and eternal separation from God. And it's not a tally system where if you do enough good things, you might earn your way to God. The Bible says that God is perfect, that he is sinless. And the wage for any sin is eternal separation from God because God who is sinless can't be with us who are sinners. That's a massive problem. Yet the Bible tells us that even in our sin, that even in our rebellion, God desires to be in relationship with us. And he goes so far as to send Jesus to pay the penalty that our sin deserves on the cross. Romans 5a, which is my favorite verse of the Bible, says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God so loves, so values, so cares for you and I that while we were sinners, while we were living in rebellion, God sent Jesus to pay the death that our sin warranted, that our sin deserved. And it gets more incredible. The Bible tells us that if we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, if we put our faith in him, he will forgive us of our sins and we will inherit his righteousness. And righteousness is just a big church word for that he will forgive us of all things that we've done wrong. He will clear the slate and he will make us pure so we can live with him forever. God so loves us that he sent Jesus to die the death our sin deserves. And if we place our faith in him, he promises forgiveness, eternal life. And we become sinless, righteous through Jesus' death and resurrection. Our value, our identity is not found in what the world says we are. It's not found in who the scientists say we are. It's not found in who our friends or neighbors or coworkers or classmates say we are. Our identity is found in who Jesus says we are. And Jesus says he loves us so much that he gave his life for us and he calls us forgiven. Paul in Romans 8 writes this. He says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are our children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. He writes in Galatians 3, So in Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all, in one, all are one in Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Paul says if you are a follower of Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God. And adoption is such a beautiful picture of who you are in Jesus and how God sees you. 
Because just as the adoptive parent sees the adopted child as one of their own, as a complete member of the family, so too does God see his children who have put their faith in Jesus. According to the Roman legal system, which our adoption is patterned after, the person who is adopted into a new family gains all the legal rights of a legitimate son or daughter in that new family. And in that, he loses all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities of his old family. By becoming a member of the new family, he gains all the rights of his new father's estate. He was now an equal with the other sons and daughters in his new family. He becomes a co-heir with them according to the law. He is regarded as a new person who has a new life in a new family. Another beautiful thing about the Roman law is that the old life of the adopted son was completely wiped out. All of his debts canceled. His past now has nothing to do with him. He is in a new relationship with a new family. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. God in his mercy has brought us into his absolute possession. The old life has no rights over us. God has absolute rights to us. The past is canceled and its debts wiped out. We begin a new life with God and become heirs of his riches. And because that's true, we become joint heirs with Jesus, God's only son. And that which Jesus inherits, we also inherit. And since Jesus was raised to life and glory, we are promised to be raised to life and glory. Our value is found in our identity in Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are loved. You were bought through Jesus' death, and God has declared over you that you are forgiven, that you are a son or daughter of the king, that your eternity is secured, and that you are prized. So when you hear the world tell you that you are nothing, that you don't matter, remember who Jesus says you are. And if you're here today and you're, or you're watching online and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you have the chance to repent and believe in him today. He loves you. He died for you. And he longs to forgive you and welcome you to his family. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible that says this. It says, For God so loved the world, for he so loved you, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God created you. The God of the universe created you, and he created you with purpose, and he loves you, and he longs to be in a relationship with you. But in order to recognize his forgiveness, to receive his eternal life, to be an adopted son or daughter, you must recognize that you have sinned. You must believe that Jesus is God's son and he died for you. You must confess that sin, repent, and turn to him. To put your faith, your future, your eternity in the hands of Jesus and ask him to be the Lord, the boss, the Adonai of your life. Paul writes in Romans 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you repent, when you believe in Jesus, he is faithful to forgive all your sins. He's faithful to give you eternal life. He's faithful to call you his son or his daughter. And so if you're searching for your place, for your value, for your purpose, for your identity in this life, the Bible tells us there's only one source, and that source is Jesus. He created you. He loves you. He died for you, and he is faithful to forgive you if you'll repent and follow after him. Our value is not found in who we are. Our value is found in who God says we are. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, God calls us forgiven, and he calls us his son or his daughter. Our, our identity is found in our creator and who God says we are as his child. On April 30th, 2013, Robert Galbraith released a crime novel called Cuckoo's Calling. The crime novel barely sold 500 copies in the first few months. 
Many store owners considered pulling the book from their shelves. But then on July 14th, there was news that changed all of that. News came that Gail Braith was announced was not the true author, but that it was instead written and published by J.K. Rowling. And from there, sales skyrocketed. It quickly rose to the top of multiple bestseller lists. And the mere mention of her name changed everything. In the same way, it's not our gifts, it's not our skill set that gives us value, but it's who God says we are and who we are in Him that matters. There's a worship song titled, Who You Say I Am. And it sings, Who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. I am chosen, I am not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. Our hope, our value, our identity is found in who God says we are and not any other voice in this world. So as we begin to wrap up, in this life we struggle to accurately see ourselves and see our identity and who God says we are. You are neither the center of everything nor the pointless afterthought of a blind universe. You have glory, honor, significance, and a role to play in this world, but you're not the source of any of it. And so to the self-centered side of all of us, Paul says to us in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? God created you. He gave you every gift, every talent, every skill you have. And you may have worked hard, you may have perfected and managed those gifts well, but they are all a gift from God. So this week, if you struggle with that, instead of thinking about how great you are, think about how great God is. Give thanks to Him for all the gifts and skills He has given you. Make a list this week of all the things God has given you and give thanks. For He alone is majestic and worthy of praise. Recognize and give glory to the Creator as opposed to yourself or anything else that, that is created. Allow the created to lift your eyes to the creator. And then to the side of us that often feels alone and lost in the cosmos, lost in a sea of billions of people, Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, 29 through 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. God is not some disengaged and detached leader. He created this vast universe, and he is acquainted with every detail of it. And we can draw comfort from the fact that even when we feel most alone, God sees, God knows, and God's care, God cares. We are not forgotten. Remember this for those around you as well. God sees your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, the kids in your class. God sees those you love, and he loves them more than you do. Trust in that this week. And then this is all the more evidence in God's love for us and sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and his promise of eternal life, his promise of forgiveness, his promise of adoption for any who will trust in him. This week, if you struggle with your value, find your value in Jesus. Memorize passages like Psalm 139 and Matthew 10, which tell us of God created us personally. Memorize John 3.16, Romans 5.8, and others that tell us of God's love for us. Memorize passages like Galatians 3, 26 through 27, Romans 8, 14 through 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Romans 8, 1. Memorize these passages and let those become the soundtrack of your mind and of your inner thoughts. 
You are loved. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are forgiven in him. You are a new creation in him. You are his beloved child. Let that become your identity as you memorize and repeat those passages to yourself. Don't let the world dictate the narrative of your mind, but hold on to the truths of who God says you are. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. You are a new creation in Jesus. Find your identity, your purpose, your value in who he says you are. Then lastly, if you're here today or you're watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus, would you listen and consider who it is that he says you are? David in the Bible declared that you are not an accident. You are not random. You're not just a collection of cells in this vast cosmos. But instead, God declares over your life that you were created with intentionality and with purpose. You were loved and you are loved by God so much that he sent Jesus to die and pay the price for your sins. God longs to be in a relationship with you. He longs to forgive you of your sins. And he waits for you to repent and turn to him. Do you believe that Jesus was the son of God? Do you believe he died and rose again? Do you believe that you are a sinner in need of rescue? If so, would you repent and turn to Jesus today? Would you make him the Lord of your life? The Bible promises that if you do, your sins will be forgiven. Your eternity is secure in heaven. You will become righteous through the blood of Jesus. And God will speak over your life that you are his child, his son, his daughter. When you repent and trust in Jesus, your identity is changed forever. So if that's you, would you trust him today? Or would you at least begin that conversation to investigate who Jesus is and whether or not you want to follow him with your life? Our value, our purpose, our identity is to be found in Jesus alone. God is majestic. He is creator. He alone is worthy of worship, and he gives us value. I'm going to pray for us, and I do. The worship team is going to come and close us in a song. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are majestic, that you are creator, that you are all-powerful, that you are sustainer of this world. God, we thank you that you alone are worthy of worship. God, I pray if we're here and we're worshiping anything other than you, Lord, that you, would, uh, that you would raise flags in our head and we would repent and worship you alone. But God, we thank you that we are not just random accidents. We're not just collections of cells in this big world. That each of us was created intentionally and intimately by you with purpose. God, we thank you that despite our sin and rebellion, you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven. God, we thank you that you don't just forgive us, but that you adopt us and you call us your son or your daughter. We thank you that you give us value and significance in you. So God, I pray for, for anyone here that is a follower of you, Lord, that you would help us to find our identity in you alone. That you would help us to see areas where we have drifted and we are finding our identity in something else and that you would call us back to you. God, I pray for anyone here or watching online that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. God, that you would give them the, the courage to recognize their sin. The courage to, to repent and to turn to you. Lord, that they would find their value and their significance and their identity in you alone. As you forgive them and call them your son or daughter. God, would you give them the courage to take that first step of whatever that is to follow you with their lives, to repent and turn to you. God, we thank you that you are faithful to forgive. 
We thank you that our value and purpose and identity is found in you alone. God, and we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.